Heterodorks, heterodox dorks. Whoa, we're halfway there. Whoa, living. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I meant to say hetero. Yep, that's our other podcast. Heterodorks, heterodox dorks. Hello, turfs and trannies. You are listening to the Heterodorks podcast. I am Nina Paley, your co-host. And I am John Bon Jovi, your other co-host. And wait, no, sorry, Corinna Cohn. Sorry, I got the podcast mixed up again. Um, but Nina and I are starting a, a cover band, so keep a, an eye out for that. We have a guest heterodork with us today. She is Julie Bindle. Uh, she is the foremost, uh, is, it, is it wrong if I say you're the foremost feminist in the UK? That's how I think of you. Well, I'm sure that many people that think they are would disagree with that. So let's just go with our own opinion. Sure. Let's, in my opinion, the foremost She's feminist. She's the foremost, foremost feminist except for all the others. Well, I wouldn't say except for, along with. But she is also a long-term activist, a journalist. She has helped to expose uh, grooming gangs and trafficking. Uh, she has been constantly commenting on feminism in the modern era and has uh, lots of views, uh, particularly, I think, right now, Julie, if you don't mind me just launching into this, it seems like there is some conflict happening in in feminist circles right now, as there seems to be a more welcoming approach to more right-wing women who are speaking out against gender, and there seems to be maybe some elements of more traditional white right-wing groups that are trying to inject themselves into feminism or, or feminist uh, activism. And it sounds like you might have some discomfort with where things are going. Well, they're not injecting themselves into feminism. The women that are on the right, and mainly in the US, but some here in the UK, are women's rights campaigners. They're single issue campaigners against trans ideology. And they are denouncing feminism very, very clearly. So they have horrible things to say about feminism, about the left and about feminists. So, of course, they have the absolute right to do their campaigning, to speak their own truth, to ally with whoever they want. The problem I have, as someone who's been in the women's liberation movement for more than four decades, is that they are being mistaken for feminists, mm. or that people are thinking that this is now an expansion of feminism, which would be like saying an expansion of anti-racist organising is to have people that don't believe in racism in the movement. So... As a feminist campaigner, I think we have the right, in fact, the imperative and the duty to define feminism in our own terms. Now, my feminism will be different from other women's feminism, but there is, I think we have to agree, a bottom line. In the same way that there is a bottom line for people who are fighting for disability rights and equality, for those fighting against racism and imperialism, for those that campaign against the wealthy, privileged, um, destroying workers' rights. It's absolutely fine that we say as feminists that we are an anti-oppressive movement. So we centre women and girls in our movement. We're the only movement that does on the planet. But if we're anti-oppression, that means that we can't then support the oppression or turn a blind eye to the oppression of some women. For example, women of colour, disabled women, working class and poor women and lesbians, those that are the targets of far right extremists and religious fundamentalists. I was speaking to uh, an American mother earlier today and told her that we'd be speaking with you today. And she wanted to ask, she, she wanted to ask of you when the Proud Boys are showing up to these feminist events in the United States to provide ostensibly to provide some protection of the speakers, why that isn't actually a, a desirable thing to have? Well, they're not turning up to feminist events. Feminists would not have far-right males supporting our events. We organise our own security. 
So I can't answer that question because it's framed inaccurately. That that's fair. But it, 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 imagine if imagine if I were organising a feminist rally as the co-founder of Justice for Women, for example, a feminist law reform organisation that helps women escape prison who have responded to domestic violence, who've killed violent men and who've been wrongly convicted of murder. Imagine that far-right men turned up to offer me security. I can't because they wouldn't, because they are virulently opposed to what I am doing. That's a clue. Now, I don't have a problem with men who share our ideals and want to support us running a creche offering to provide security, but I don't want men to protect us, whatever side of the fence, right or left, they're on, because protectionism is patriarchal, and that that just simply perpetuates the notion that women are the weaker sex, and that we need to look to men for protection as opposed to challenge their notion that we are in need of protection. So, you know, when when this woman asked you to ask me this question, it should be really straightforward. If women want big, strong, right-wing men to look after them, we know these women. They are either embedded in right-wing ideology, such as Andrea Dworkin describes in her brilliant book in the 80s, I don't remember which year, Right-Wing Women, where women think, okay, we'll never actually change men. Women are weaker than men. Men are stronger than women. This is the natural order of things. Women are meant to raise children and be passive housewives. So therefore, we will be protected. And that's the price we pay to be subservient. If those women want to look for protection from men, I don't judge those women. I judge the men that give women the idea that they will protect us when, in fact, they're going to rape and abuse and demean and patronise us. Of course they are. That's the price we pay. So no, no feminist would have right-wing men protecting us or running our security. Thank you very much. I assume that feminist events that, let's say, you would organise, if you organised security, some of the security people would be men, or would they all be women? Well, you know, I, I think that there's a risk when we're out in the street I've been attacked by men by trans activist men by by misogynistic men in general where we expect to be able to protect each other we can't rely on our police service to do that because they are too busy abusing women themselves quite frankly although I do believe in reforming the police service as opposed to abolishing the police but that might be another conversation But I'm not going to go back to the 1950s and ask men to protect us from the very things that those men protecting us are already doing to us. I'll give you an example from when I was a very young feminist. I was 17, 18 years old, and I'd moved to a city called Leeds in the north of England from the small town in which I was raised. And I was living in a hostel with my girlfriend. I was very green and naive about many things, but I had joined an organization called Women Against Violence Against Women that also had chapters in the US, and we were campaigning against blatant misogyny, rape, the industrialization of pornography and the like. And there was a serial killer at large at the time called Peter Sutcliffe. We didn't know that. He was daubed by the press and the police, the Yorkshire Ripper, because the region, region was Yorkshire. He was killing women in prostitution, women who were single mothers, women who were on their way to the bar to buy cigarettes, women who were vulnerable and out in the street that he thought wouldn't be noticed if they went missing. And he eventually, I mean, he was convicted of killing 13 women, leaving seven women for dead, but there are many more. But anyway, to go back to when I was in this hostel with my then girlfriend, and this was in 1979, very early eight, 1980, I was in a bar with her. We had an argument, as, you know, young lesbians do. And she stormed off and I ran behind her. And every woman in the region was scared because we'd been told that the the, the danger for women was on the streets. We knew fine well the danger for women largely was in the home by men we knew. But the danger was in the streets because there was this bogeyman at large. And we were told, don't go out unless you're accompanied by a man. But the women knew that the men that would accompany them 
were the men that were more likely to abuse them than this one particular deranged serial killer that was stalking the area. And as I was walking up the hill, and a middle-aged man um, came up to me and said, you know that there's a serial killer at large. Let me walk you home. He offered me protection. And I knew instinctively he was a perpetrator. He was someone that, an opportunist, that saw a young woman out there who was scared enough to walk with him up a dark alley and who would then very likely not report when he sexually assaulted me. That's the protection that these men offer. There is a condition, and the condition is that they might protect us against more imminent danger than someone who's out there wanting to throw some gas canister at us or kick our head in. The price we pay is that we actually have to live under his protection and abuse. I I get that. Would you say that that is a separatist position? No, I'm not a separatist. I was a separatist in my late teens for about five, six months, I think, when I was absolutely rabidly you know, new to feminism. It was all very exciting. I was angry. And I saw that men were the enemy, of course, which is true in that, that patriarch is the enemy. I would phrase that differently now. And I suppose I got bored with separatism when I realised I couldn't even get on a bus or a train that a man was driving um, and I had to walk the very long distance into town. And that when I went into the grocery store, a man who called me love, because men in Yorkshire, where I lived then, even call each other love, I saw that as deeply offensive and I would shout at them and storm out of the store. So I would have no groceries and I'd have to walk three miles for the privilege of getting no groceries. And actually there were some men that I thought were quite decent, including those in my family, that I wanted to occasionally have a a cup of coffee with or um, dance with at a gay bar. So it's not a separatist position. It's understanding that there is a price to pay if we ask men to protect us. And that price, in the broader sense, is that we've given up on the idea of liberation. That we say that, okay, we are always going to need the protection of men, and therefore we're always going to be vulnerable to them. You know what? I'm glad you're talking about this, because I am hitting a wall with reality. Uh, which I think that trans activism has brought a lot of feminists to that prior to modern trans activism, it was very appealing to think that men and women were more similar than we actually are. And now we have the reality of our biological differences in our faces. And I have to acknowledge that, yeah, on the whole, men are 35% bigger, stronger than women on the whole, that they can punch 50, you know, upper body strength is higher than that. They're more violent. They're, you know, we're like physically different. So I, you know, in terms of practical everyday matters, if I need physical protection, like if I wanted a bodyguard, I would definitely be considering people that had greater upper body strength. Right. And I've had male bodyguards. I've had male bodyguards and I've chosen male bodyguards who have those attributes without also thinking that we should criminalize abortion, that women should go back in the kitchen, that rape is a benefit for men in relationships, that it's fine to pay for sex, that black women have a lower IQ than white women. That immigration is wrong and is destroying our white nations. So, yeah, I agree. I would choose male bodyguards if I needed them in certain circumstances who share my core values. I will not give any credence or any strength or any credibility to right wing men that wish to destroy all our rights. For my part, I would be happy to be a bodyguard for either of you. And I'd be very happy to hire you as a bodyguard. I would Thank not. You. I would not. I've never seen Corinna throw up. I am, I am doubtful, actually, about Corinna's. You know, we have some great lesbian bodyguards back in the UK. You know, we have Leanne, 
Timmerman, who is head of security for many of our events, who is a fabulous woman, a fine looking lesbian who stands proud and who just holds the ground. Um, and she has many well-trained women that do not wish to ever provoke or even be involved in violence, but are just there as a deterrent and a kind of, you know, you want to get to these women, you've got to get past us first. Yes, they're well-trained. That's what I'm saying in oh, regards yeah. to our friend Corinna here. I, I don't think will hear no disre- I will hear no disrespect for Corinna, none. Yeah. I'm... Have watched a lot of martial arts movies, Nina, and played a lot of vi- video games, and played some. Yep, I've played Street Fighter all the way through. I I think I could do okay. <laughs> well, Julie can hire you. <laughs> I'm going to go hire one of the Proud Boys, and, and wow. he'll kick your ass. <laughs> wow, Nina, I hope he's cute and gay. Me too. That would be a sweet All right. story. All right, moving moving on, even though we could really talk about this for a long time. Since you're talking about lesbians, uh, what is your take on political lesbianism? I know you have written about it and you've gotten flack for it. And of course, Sheila Jeffries gets tons of flack for it now. There are people that will not even countenance her name. I read her book, The Lesbian Heresy, a couple years ago. I loved it. Uh can you just talk about political lesbianism for a while? Yeah, it's the most misunderstood term on the planet, probably, when we're talking about planet feminist. I don't agree with Sheila Jeffries on on the way that she would explain political lesbianism, almost as if women have an imperative to give up men. I've heard Sheila berate heterosexual women publicly for wearing lipstick for dating men. I think that's a way to make sure women never join feminism as opposed to politicizing them. I think it's a terrible strategic error. Um, but, But I think that for me, it's about being political about lesbianism. It's about saying there is no such thing as a gay gene. If there was, the scientists would have found it. They've been looking for it since before the Nazis. They have been searching for the reason why we are freaks. This is the only reason why scientists started looking for an explanation as to why we are same-sex attracted. That's women and men. Why would they do that unless they wanted to abort us as fetuses? Why would they do that unless they wanted to try to convert us as infants? But as I say, there can't be a gay gene Because too many lesbians and even some gay men come out in later life, having been in heterosexual marriages, having quite enjoyed sex with men at the time. And then, of course, wham, they fall in love with a woman. That's it. They are totally and utterly captivated. They will never look at another schlong again for as long as they live. Now, those women are lesbians, right? Anyone that says that that means that they're not a real lesbian, they're buying into the notion that we are programmed as lesbians from birth. I don't know about you, but I wasn't born fancying the midwife. I don't actually think that babies are sexual beings. And it's a part, I mean, why ever we are lesbians or gay men, who cares? Who cares? The point is that for women, it is, aside from the anti-lesbian prejudice that we get, It is an advantage and a privilege. For men, they lose privilege, they lose power because they don't have the patriarchal power over their heterosexual family unit. Whereas with women, of course, if we were to push aside all of the external pressure, the punishment rapes, the forced marriage, the compulsory heterosexuality under which we are raised to varying degrees within different countries and cultures, it is a huge advantage to women to be in relationships with other women. And the idea that there's such a thing as a real, authentic lesbian means that there are women who are just pretending to be lesbians, despite the fact that they are in relationships with other women, whether it's long-term, loving, partnership-for-life relationships or sexual relationships um, with several women. They are lesbians. They are in relationships with women. They desire women. They love women. They reject men. So the the idea that political lesbianism means that you're a heterosexual woman 
But in order to punish men because you hate them so much because you're angry about what they've done to you in childhood or whatever, that you decide that you will force yourself to become attuned to sex and relationships with other women is bonkers. It is madness. So we have to get away from talking about women not being real lesbians if they've had heterosexual pasts or if they somehow don't wear the right clothes or if, and I've heard Sheila Jeffries do this, I've heard her denounce women who say they're lesbians and she's asked them, well, in that case, why do you wear lipstick? Because they don't look like the stereotype of lesbians. That's what it means to me, that we are political about our sexuality because it is the most, how can I put this? To be a lesbian under patriarchy is the biggest kick in the nuts to men that we could ever give them. But we don't do it because of that. But it's a great little side benefit. There might be one bigger kick to the nuts, Julie, which is to tell us that we're not women. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, men have got a vested interest in deciding exactly who we are, what we are, what we should look like, how we should behave, who we should have sex with. Um, that's their shtick. That's patriarchy. Well, I ask about the political lesbian thing. So I've, I've been identified by at least two other guests that we have recorded as a butch lesbian. They have looked at me and said, you are a butch lesbian. And I have said, like, that's interesting. Uh, given that I'm not, and I don't think a butch lesbian would. Yeah, you see your expression. You're very skeptical of that. Yes, this but, this butch femme thing really winds me up. It's like get back to the 1950s and 60s, please, where we had to dress and behave and present the way that was aping heterosexuality in order to fit in, be identified by other women and protect ourselves, right? It's it's nonsense. It really is. Some women, of course, present more in a more traditionally masculine style, but that's just sex stereotypes. That's all it is. I mean, I've been called a man. I've been asked as a, as a child, as a teenager, what are you, a boy or a girl? When I've got breasts to prove the opposite of their kind of slurs on me. And it's uh, clear wait, wait, that what they're say doing. Something about the breasts. Yeah, that's 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 not definitive, though, Julie. I mean, take it from me. Okay, but what I'm trying to say is that this is about sex stereotypes. If a woman is tall and broad-shouldered and wears her hair short and it's a particular colour and she carries herself in a particular way, like I have a friend who is ex-military. She was thrown out of the army as a 19-year-old. Uh, in the UK back in the 70s because she was a lesbian and she presents in a what you might call a traditionally butch way but it's just about sex stereotypes she's just a lesbian who looks in a particular way yeah I mean it's like going back to the old Nyad press stuff where you have to be one or the other anyway I'm, I'm not insulted by this but I'm fascinated by it particularly because I have stopped having relationships with men. So I call myself a recovering heterosexual at this point. Uh, I, I don't think that, and, and I would like a relationship with a woman. Like when I think about an actual functional relationship, I want a Boston marriage, right? Turf seeks. What's a Boston marriage? A Boston marriage. What's I have that? to look that up too. It's uh, two independent women who choose to live together. And it's, okay. it's from, I don't know, the 1700s or 1800s. There were independent, there were women of independent means in Boston who would just choose to live with each other because they didn't want to live with a man. And that's kind of okay. Boston marriage. And, you know, when I think about a functional relationship as opposed to a, you know, a hot hormone driven relationship, like what I had prior to menopause, which I'm very relieved to not want now, I think yeah, I would like a woman in my house. I would not like a man in my house. Uh, but I, I but, but lesbianism isn't a substitute for heterosexuality, is it? it it's no, it's valid no, I have I mean, that's, sexuality. Right, well, that's the thing. And that's the thing with she, what Sheila Jeffries was writing is, is it, was it always considered a sexuality in, in Jeffries book? She talked about how the very way that we think about relationships 
is is modeled after the way men think about relationships so that so that the idea of a relationship you know if you are prioritizing someone if you, you know if they are important if you're committing to them that that this is fundamentally sexual whereas she was arguing well women have had relationships like this that may or may not have been sexual some were sexual some were uh-huh. not sexual but they were still like the primary relationships in these women's lives uh-huh. and uh-huh. that is what used to be called you know all of those used to be called lesbian but now lesbian means specifically a sexual orientation you know same sex attracted women regardless of let's say uh celibate women that you know maybe aren't having sex at all but are are still having who cares who cares that's what i feel like too who cares who cares but it's but the thing is the only people that there hasn't been that much writing about this and the writing about it that has been done uses the word lesbian and uh it is all assumed to be talking about sexual orientation so that I th- I think it's it's still actually looking at women and judging their relationships and finding them wanting, and judging who is a real lesbian or a proper lesbian or a worthy lesbian or not, and the misunderstanding about political lesbianism is as I said it's as though those of us that might use that term have decided we are going to deny ourselves the pleasure of sex with men. And in order to continue to fight the patriarchy, have lesbian relationships, despite the fact that we're not true lesbians. Well, I have a huge problem with all of that, because first of all, what is a true lesbian? A lesbian is a woman in a consensual, happy and enthusiastic relationship with a woman that is a sexual relationship, whether or not it's an active sexual relationship, but it is a romantic, whatever, however you want to call it, rather than a close friendship, that she is not actively heterosexual and that she does not wish to be actively heterosexual. That is a lesbian. And I'm not going to judge women on how authentic they are in their lesbianism by, for example, deciding that a 50-year-old woman who comes out after a lifetime of heterosexuality is not a true lesbian because otherwise she would have been a lesbian from birth wrapped in the pride flag, asking the midwife on a date. It's ludicrous. And it's biologically essentialist. Well, I'm just going to stick with recovering heterosexual and Boston marriage. I think that's cool. This year, I have been doing some uh, some of my own personal development after a pretty intense discussion with one of our previous guests, Angus Fox, who's a a gay man. And I was describing to him that I've pretty much given up trying to find a relationship because I know I am, I'm a male. I am in some ways uh, you could say disfigured because I've had sex reassignment surgery. And, but I want to, if I ever am in a relationship, I want it to be with a man who knows that I'm not a female who does not expect me to enact womanhood or or pretend or any of this sort of stuff like some mm-hmm. of my previous relationships have been, but somebody who takes me as I am. Mm-hmm. And, and I've been telling him, I, I just, I don't think that there's anybody that would take me that way. And and he really got mad at me for saying that. But as, as part of this journey, I'm trying to, it's weird to say this, but try to, um, imagine myself as even though I'm I'm same sex attracted trying to imagine myself as a gay man because I've gone through my whole adulthood uh way outside of the like inner workings of of gay male society mm-hmm. and uh it's it's just weird now trying to find any sort of spot for myself in there and it, it occurs to me that the term gay is it encapsulates a number of social aspects that the term same sex attracted doesn't. And, and I'm like, there's a difference between those two things. And I'm trying to figure out what it means personally, how, how, how I fit there. 
Yeah, and I think that there's lots of women, young women, who are attracted to other women who are being told that they're queer and that this isn't a valid identity or sexual orientation, however you want to call it, that are very confused and feel really alienated. And I think in many ways that's harder for them than it was for me coming out in the 1970s because then it was very clear if you if you said you were a lesbian it was an abhorrence you were a freak you were told that you could not look after your neighbor's children because you weren't safe to be with children you had no legal rights whatsoever with your housing with your job in terms of violence perpetrated against you or goods and services that could be denied you. And that was a free-for-all. And so the word lesbian had to be proudly, not reclaimed, but claimed. And that's why I'm very protective of it. Because we had to fight for it not to feel like an absolutely hideous word on our own tongues, let alone when we heard it from those that were virulently opposed to our rights as lesbians. What do you mean you're protective of it? I will not use gay. I will not use queer. I'm very, very firm about my lesbian identity. If somebody refers to me as a gay woman, I'll correct them nicely, of course, because I am nice. If sometimes if they say a lesbian woman, I'll ask them what other type there is. Um, anyone dares to say queer, ever dares to refer to me as queer. And that's when I get angry and not so nice. Because it's a slur. It's an imposed term. It is deeply offensive. It can't be reclaimed. I absolutely uphold the right of those that wish to use it for themselves. But I don't like the fact that they've colonised our language that we fought for in the lesbian and gay liberation movement, when we had no rights and when it was very, very tough to do so. And to now use it in a way that is so, what's the word? It's used so lightly and frivolously. You know, it's used to describe straight men that like kink, often to the detriment of women. And how dare they lump me in with men that want to strangle women to unconsciousness during sex. And they call themselves queer and they impose that term upon me. No, lesbian is a fine word and it has a very, very proud history. And I think that we should be ensuring that young women who wish to be defined as lesbians aren't railroaded into using terms that waters down their proud identity and sexuality. For young detransitioners of either sex who have been inculcated into the gender ideology and who've been deliberately misled to conflate their sexual orientation with their, with their gender identity or their gender presentation and who've been trained now for the last 10 years to consider lesbians to be um, oppressive of trans people, which I know that sounds crazy, but this is part of the, the narrative that, that young uh, gender people are, are internalizing. Yes. I, I think it's very difficult for people who are same-sex attracted of, of either sex to really try to find their place again in gay culture or lesbian culture because for so long those have been described as being uh, antithetical to the um, program, uh, like the, the queer politics program. So there is, even though LGBTQ plus is the new umbrella term that's supposed to cover everybody, there's a lot of internal conflict and I, I just, I wonder how we're going to continue into the future as people fall out of the gender cult and try to find a place for themselves 
under that same umbrella. It's it's not really yes. clear to me. Uh, I absolutely take your point, and I think it's a, a matter of serious concern because I couldn't actually quite believe it when I heard from some feminist friends, some lesbian friends, that young women that had gone through stages of transitioning to become trans men who of course regretted it and detransitioned that they were being told they were traitors that they weren't welcome back in the movement that they couldn't define themselves as lesbians to me it's one of the most shocking heartless and cruel things that I've ever heard from women that define themselves as feminists but that's not feminism Talk about victim blaming and not appreciating how many of us have gone through complicated stages in our lives, even before the trans madness, where, for example, when I came out in the north of England in the 70s as a teenager, where I might have, had I not been lucky enough to meet feminists at an early age, where I might have actually married a man and had kids and gone through all of that stuff and denounced lesbians and denounced feminists and joined societies or friendship groups that were deeply you know, patriarchal and then all of a sudden wanted to come home to my true self, I wouldn't have been told, you're a traitor. I would have been understood that I'd lost how, however many years of my life to having to try to survive from being railroaded into what patriarchy had set out for me. And that is how I see young detransitioned women and men who want to come back home, who need to actually find an identity, a sexuality, a place in the world that was theirs all along, but that they were railroaded from and that they were that they were pushed on a different path away from. And to say you're not welcome because you've betrayed us is one of the most sinister things I have ever heard within this crazy trans madness that we're in. Can you define patriarchy? Mm. You know, it's a term I used to not use when I was a younger feminist. I used to talk about male supremacy because I think that patriarchy is a bit too much of a, almost a floating, you know, you can't touch it, you can't see it. Um, it might actually have a good connotation for some, you know, a patriarchal protectionist like the Proud Boys. Um, patriarchy isn't a terrible word in many ways. It describes, I suppose, a state of being, a culture that is global, that permeates every single institution on the planet. So in Pakistan or Saudi Arabia, patriarchy plays out in different, more extreme forms because there are even fewer laws to protect women or, in fact, no laws to protect women. And there's little outward facing feminist resistance because of the extreme danger women are in. In the UK, patriarchy is in our face in the way that we see that we've got one percent conviction rate of any rape that's reported to police. So the vast majority of rapes aren't reported and the majority of those that are, these men walk free, that is patriarchy. In the US, and please forgive me if I'm going to offend you here, I probably am, you've got lean-in feminism, you've got a type of feminism that cares more about the women breaking through glass ceilings and earning lots of money than actual grassroots feminism. It seems to me you've got no left. That's why this trans madness has completely taken over and barely anyone dares to speak out about it. And that it, that's all patriarchy. And feminists, of course, resist patriarchy. And I think if we had to define it, it would be the rule of law the rule of men's interests in every single faction of our culture. And when people talk about harmful cultural practices, usually they mean things like forced marriage, female genital mutilation, polygamy. They might mean those things that happen to women out there, things that happen to women within cultures that most white Americans and British feminists might not have seen up front. So they mean other. Um, 
the only culture I'm interested in talking about is patriarchy, because there's no such thing as a cultural norm, which means that seven-year-old girls have their genitals mutilated or are married at 12. There's no such culture. It's not written with any religious texts. It's patriarchy. And how do you define feminism? I think we have a duty and an imperative to define feminism. If we don't, then we allow for anti-feminists to colonise it, to take it over, to distort it, to pour scorn on it, to harm us reputationally. And I think that's what's going on with some of the women that are allying with right-wing forces. To be fair to them, they're openly anti-feminist. They don't say they're feminists, but others do. Others, they... They mistake them for for the women in my movement. Um, feminism has to be an anti-oppressive movement, but it has to centre women and girls. And at its centre, it has to focus on the one thing, and I would argue it's the only thing, that affects women and girls in every culture, in every country, every corner of the globe, everywhere, which is the threat or the reality of men's violence. There is nothing else that unites us. And that's fine. We, we don't have to be the same. We're three and a half billion females. We don't have to be the same. We certainly are not. That's why feminism is for everyone, including the women we do not like, including the women that are against us. But that doesn't mean every woman, every woman who speaks about women's rights, that does not mean they are feminists. Feminism is a political movement that has to focus on the oppressive nature of men's violence and abuse and control of women. And it has to recognise that none of this is innate. I agree with you. There are physical differences that are very significant between women and men. And we need to acknowledge that. But none of this is an excuse or a reason for rape or for paying for sex or for coercively controlling women in relationships. None of it can be excused or explained by levels of testosterone or upper body strength. So that to me is feminism. And I think that feminists are men's best friends because we don't believe that they're born bad. We don't believe there's anything biologically determined. We, we don't believe in an inevitability of male violence. So we see that change is possible. But I think we're probably going to have to force that change because men are a little bit slow in um, coming to support feminism, which is why I 100% denounce the Proud Boys and other right-wing men who only want to get us back in the kitchen barefoot and pregnant. And I 100%... not our friend. I 100% denounce the feminist men who 100% want to get laid and do the coercive control. So there are two types of men that I cannot abide and that I will not talk to and that, in fact, are that it's utterly pointless to talk to them. On the one side, there are those fake leftists, Owen Jones, who's a British um, columnist. I wouldn't call him a journalist. It would dignify him. Mm. And Billy Bragg and other fake leftist men who hate women and they want to call us cunts, but they call us turf instead. And those men are misogynists. They may well situate themselves on the left. They may well have some leftist politics and activities going on for them. They may denounce anti-racist. They may denounce um, anti-immigration policies. They support a left-wing government. They hate women. They hate women's rights. They only like the women that spout the feminism that they can get behind, which isn't feminism at all. It's sex work is work. Trans women are women. Stripping is empowering. You know the shtick. And then on the other side, there's Matt Walsh and there's the Proud Boys and all of that lot who say that they want to protect us, that say that they honour and love women, that say that women are precious to them, but actually just want us to be back in cavemen era. No point talking to those two groups of dudes. They're the same dude. So we need to somehow get the men that aren't those two extremists, but there's plenty of them, to think about how feminism is a gift to them, 
but that they need to be doing the work, not us. We don't need to invite men into feminism. No, no, no. We don't want to give them a place at the table. We want them to be going around talking to boys and young men about the harms of pornography to their sexual development, but primarily to women and girls. We need those men to be going out and doing that work. And there are some men doing it. And I'm glad they are. And some of them are my friends. But we have to know which men are a waste of time. I don't mind that some men are going to other men talking against pornography in men's interest. Like, I don't mind that there are men reaching out to men that are prioritizing men and their reason for doing it is not because of how it hurts women, but because of how it messes up men. I'm like, fine. And I'm glad those yeah. men are doing it because they're not going to listen to me. Good, good. Because actually, if men are depressed, if men are feeling in the wilderness, reach out to other men, as you say. Have a look at your poor news. Have a look at the fact that every week, instead of visiting your mother or you know, working at a food bank or visiting a friend, you're going out and abusing a woman in a brothel and it's actually doing nothing for you but making you angry. Have a think about those things. Talk to other men about that. I don't want them to come to me and waste my time with it, but I certainly want them to have those conversations. I agree with you. There's a group of men that are called involuntary celibates mm -hmm. that have a very, very difficult time getting any social purchase, not just romantically, but on the, the class escalator, they're sort of stuck as well. And uh, there's actually, I believe, some overlap between incels and the trans community. I think that there's more bleed over than either side really wants to talk about. And I was listening yeah. to a, an interview with Jordan Peterson, where the interviewer accused him of being a, a role model to incels. And I don't know if you saw this, but he almost started to break down and, and cry when he was answering. And he said, doesn't, doesn't everybody who's marginalized deserve somebody to help them and advocate for them? But then Jordan Peterson is, is uh, often also attacked as being somebody who is um, like a, pa a patriarch, the patriarch. And it's interesting to me because I, I think everybody ought to have somebody inspiring them to feel some dignity and, and self-respect. I think that's fundamental to even to, to even be a, a, a good male ally or to be a, a, a feminist at all. I think you have to have uh, some dignity and self-respect. But it's, it's interesting to me that when men try to elevate other men, that it, it seems so controversial when that happens. It's true, and I think that many men honestly believe somehow that their needs are being ignored and that they have been neglected when nothing could be further from the truth. It's not women's problems if men ignore their own warning signs about mental health, about their disenfranchisement, their relationships with other men and women. It's for them to sort out. And in a way, I want men to talk, but I don't want them to come to me and spend three and a half, four hours bending my ear about their feelings. We hear too much about men's feelings already. You know, I want them to get on and do some stuff and then we can be friends. And this is what I mean about feminism is a gift to men because actually they're losing out on great friendships with women. If we were just people, if there was none of this rape bullshit and the controlling nonsense that we have to put up with and this posturing and we could just be humans together we could have some great friendships we wouldn't really care about that bit of gristle that's hanging between a man's legs if he wasn't going to use it as a weapon it wouldn't matter to us i wouldn't care about single sex changing rooms if there was no sexual assault some women might i wouldn't i wrote notes when you were defining feminism i wrote an anti-oppression political movement that centers women and girls and unites us against male violence. Is that correct? It sounds pretty good, doesn't it? <laughs> so my, I don't, 
I don't know if I fit that definition right now. I, I feel like I became more feminist or differently feminist because I was a liberal feminist before in the last five years. And for me, what's changed productively is to stop focusing on men as much as I can and instead think about the various ways I've been enabling behavior uh, that I that has been detrimental to me from men. And so, this is why I'm a recovering heterosexual now is because I've looked at my whole history and I'm like, I can't do this anymore. This has been really bad for me. And there's, there's a million ways that the same scenario comes up in a relationship between a man and a woman in a heterosexual relationship. And what I concluded is that there's always an impasse at which I have to submit for the relationship to continue. And that the men, no matter how nice they are, no matter how passive they might be, most of the time, when there is an impasse and people are really scrabbling and fighting like their life depends on it, I'm the one that's going to have to submit or that relationship is going to end. And so I just decided like, well, I don't like that. That feels you know, humiliating to me and diminishing and I hate feeling like that. And so I'm going to stop doing this. Um, but I don't feel like I'm smashing the patriarchy now. I'm just going like, I am just taking, you know, I'm looking at my part mm -hmm. and I'm stopping doing my part. Yeah. And, and there's, there's the, the kind of definition of feminism or the women's liberation movement, however you want to frame it. And then there's what we all do as individuals within that. If we're not actively working against that, and if we're actually saying that's what we've signed up to do, and we might do it a tiny bit next Tuesday, and we might do it not at all for the next month, and then we might go out and protest some, you know, awful rape case that's gone wrong in the courts, and then we're doing it full on that day, that's great. But we don't have to be signed up to, we're not robots we, we do what we can when we can. But if we're actively opposed to those principles of anti-oppressive politics, and if we're deciding that women can be feminists, even if they're dead against our rights uh, 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 you know, to, to have safe and free abortion or as lesbians, that's not feminism. We have to have a line in the sand. I refuse to call women feminists who are right wing, who are who want to remove our rights. No, they're not Feminists, they may be women's rights activists, they may be against the trans obsessively to the point of where it actually is really disturbing to me, quite frankly, because they might come after lesbians next because they just think we're all weirdos. We have to have a set of principles by which we abide or we're not a political movement. And that's what I think matters, not how much we do every day. I think feminism as a political movement got co-opted decades ago. I mean, there's all these things that are called feminist that are not feminist. And that's been going on for decades. Everybody says they're feminists. Yes. Yeah. yeah, sure, sure. That That's why I think it's very important that we say, no, you're not. No, it's not. No, that group isn't. And that's why I wrote my book, Feminism for Women, because I wanted to outline what feminism is for me. You can disagree with it if you want. You can call yourself a feminist. I'm not going to stop you, but actually I'm going to challenge you on it. Because you wouldn't have an anti-racist activist standing up and saying, I don't think that there is racism in America. I think that's bullshit. You just wouldn't. You wouldn't have an anti-racist activist standing up and saying, well, um, you know, I think sometimes the police have got it right when they just decide he might be armed, even if he's not, and they've got to, you know, that they've got to shoot. I mean, that just would be unfathomable. That person would be driven out of that movement and shouted down. So why is it OK that somebody can stand up, be seen as a feminist or even say she's a feminist or even say he's a feminist and come out with the worst prejudicial stuff about women? We should challenge it at every juncture. It's important that we do. And it doesn't mean we're dissing the women. I, I have nothing against Beyonce, but she's not a feminist. To be fair, a lot of women's female women's rights activists that I have spoken to have just given up on the word feminist and don't 
don't package themselves as feminists and don't call themselves feminists. Other people, of course, continue to call all kinds of things feminists that aren't feminists. Sure. Men love to do that, right? The favorite is, yeah. oh, well, the trans right act, you got what you wanted, huh, feminists? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I've given yeah, up which on is saying, why it's important. I've given up on saying, well, that's not feminist. You don't know anything about feminism. It's like, of course they don't. We're talking about popular culture and popular discourse. People mm-hmm. don't yeah. know what they're talking about. So we need to make sure that we define that we define feminism and we need to hold that ground. We cannot let it be co-opted by anti-feminists. And that's what's happening. But it's already happened. And I will it's, not, it's too late. Well, no, no, no. No, no, it's never too late. Look at the way that every single political movement on the planet is distorted, co-opted, colonized. It still continues. There, there's still that authenticity. If it's too late, then why on earth are we having a conversation about feminism? Because we might as well say it doesn't exist. Well, I guess, uh, how can I say this? I think there are people, like you and I can talk about feminism and know you and I know what we're talking about. But perhaps the people that are practicing the feminism might be the ones, some of them might not be using that terminology. And they don't need to. I'm a free culture advocate, a free culture activist. And most of the people that understand and practice free culture, they don't care about any sort of free culture movement. They're just doing the things. They're doing the things that I'm hoping that people would do. And they're not coming from you know, my theory or my movement or what I call my movement. Yeah, it's fine by me. No, it's fine by me. I mean, I just don't want anti-feminists to co-opt the term. I don't mind women are doing stuff. Some men are doing stuff. I don't need them to call themselves anti-sexist or feminist allies. I'd rather they didn't just get on and do the stuff. What upsets me is the idea that feminism does not have any boundaries, that anyone can just use the term. And I think we have to really resist that. I was recently at a conference, a filia conference, which is an annual event international and it moves around the UK so this time it was in Cardiff a city in Wales and there were almost 1,800 women there doing feminism talking feminism exploring feminism thinking about it learning about it some of them probably wouldn't use the word but there were no anti-feminists there and there were no women's rights activists that were standing with the proud boys shouting about obsessively about the trans threat and sadism and whatever QAnon, whatever conspiracy theories you've all got back in the States that have co-opted some of our women that are then in turn mistaken for feminists. It's deeply damaging and I want nothing to do with them. Juliet has been so wonderful having you share your time with us today. I'm wondering for people who are not already following you and following your writings, people in our audience who hopefully, hopefully most people are already, but what are you working on right now that you'd like people to be paying attention to? I have a Substack, which is about misogyny. What is it and why won't it die? In the hope that one day it will die, of course. And so you can find me on Substack, um, just my name and Substack will get you there easily. And I'm working on a book proposal about men about how are some men doing work that could support our efforts to end male violence but they're not doing it from the muesli eating knitting their own scarves sitting cross-legged talking about their pain but they're just doing it getting on with it practically and how is it that they can reach other men to do this because at some stage we've got to we've got to find a way in which men can actually see this crisis for women and girls and get on board without feminists saying, come and have a seat at the table and giving them special dispensation. We're not going to do that. Uh, And I'm doing some investigations into crimes against Indigenous women Hmm. in Canada and other investigations about male violence and police corruption and failures of the state to prevent men from committing these crimes and from failure to protect women and girls who die at the hands of violent men. So all happy, jolly, 
lovely stuff. Oh, and I've got to, you just reminded me, I'm writing a food review tomorrow, which I'd forgotten about. So I'm going to have to get up very early and do it. It's actually one of my pet hates, which is pubs, you know, British pubs. Oh, yeah. Um, so there's this trend has been going for about 15, 20 years to put a restaurant area into a pub. I mean, it's ridiculous. You might as well go to a restaurant. It's the worst idea in the world. But I found one that will convince me that I should go in there and eat. It's a South Indian restaurant near my manor in North London. So I've got to write about how I was wrong and about how I found something that's proven me wrong. So, yeah, that's what I've got to get up very early in the morning to do. And then I'm flying to Germany to a prostitution conference where we're looking at how to criminalise the men that pay for sex and um, convince governments that prostitution is neither inevitable or harmless and that we should really look at why there are some men that want to pay for access to the inside of vulnerable women's bodies. So, like I say, all cheery, but all good stuff. That's a full schedule. Excellent. Thank you so much, Julie Bindle, for joining us. And thank you, Turfs and Trannies, for listening. Oh, you're halfway there. Well, bye. (laughs) Bye. Thank you, Julie. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to Heterodorks. You can support our podcast by visiting anchor.fm slash heterodorks or by directly supporting Nina Paley on Patreon at patreon.com slash Nina Paley.